is that's new. There's always plenty of enthusiasm of the people that are involved during those first steps of something new. But the real challenge for us is building the perseverance and the persistence that helps us to overcome obstacles to whatever it is that's new. President Calvin Coolidge, I'm not a big student of history and presidents, but uh, President Coolidge is not one that is remembered for a whole lot that I recall. But he did have at least one very interesting quote here that I want you to hear. He said, press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful individuals with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Now, I'm going to take by the fact that he said that President Coolidge may not have known the Lord because the Lord obviously is omnipotent. But he's underlining here the importance and the value of persistence and determination. And that's a lesson that Paul and Barnabas learned in their first missionary journey. President Coolidge's statement gives us a, an excellent backdrop for what we're going to study today, which is the advancement of the gospel into the pagan world of first century Asia Minor. Up to this point, Paul and Barnabas have pretty much exclusively visited villages and towns and cities that had a Jewish population and therefore a Jewish synagogue where they would be allowed to speak when they got into town. But today, they're leaving uh, Pisidian Antioch and they're heading into less Jewish territory, more overtly pagan territory. By the time we are finished Today, they will have visited several cities and made their way back to Pisidian Antioch, where they began their missionary journey. So in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 14, we see that Paul and Barnabas have left Antioch, traveling first to Iconium, where they begin reaching out to pagans. Now, Iconium is not the first place they visit without a Jewish synagogue, as you'll see right away. Verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now we've spoken of of their practice, Paul and Barnabas up to this point, has always been to visit a Jewish synagogue, and they did that again here in Iconium. And after they spoke there, it says a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. And as we've come to expect, not everyone was anxious to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. Then in verse 2, it speaks of the poisoning of the gospel, if you will. It says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There was this group of Jews who did not believe in Christ and his work, and they started to stir up the Gentiles. Scripture is telling us that they poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas. And whenever we proclaim the truth of the gospel, we've said a number of times in here that we can expect opposition like Paul and Barnabas experienced here in Iconium. Again, this opposition came from those who should have been the first to believe. 
the Jews who had grown up with prophecies about the Messiah. But the opposition did not arise from secular pagans or Gentiles of the city. It came from the religious population, the Jews. Then we see proof of the gospel. Verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So rather than just shake the dust from their sandals, as they did in Pisidian Antioch earlier in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, instead of moving on, stated Iconium, and it says persisted in the ministry, preaching and working miracles among the people. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we find that they did the same thing in Thessalonica. The signs and wonders that are spoken of here in verse 3 were for one purpose, and that was to authenticate the gospel message. Just as the power to work miracles had been given to the apostles and others in the early church to validate their spoken message. They had no, no Bible as a reference for what they were preaching and teaching. So God gave them the power as a mark of authority in their ministry. And now we do have a complete Bible. All teaching is measured against the authority of God's word. And signs and wonders aren't needed to authenticate what's being preached. But we see next in in verses 4 to 7 that the opposition didn't just go away. Paul and Barnabas started to experience persecution of the gospel and of themselves. Verse 4 says, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. (laughs) It's interesting to watch this, that they didn't get deterred from their, their mission. Where they were doing their mission might have changed from time to time and for various reasons, but their mission remained the same. The longer they stayed in Iconium, the greater the opposition got. The city was divided, half of them siding with the Jews and half of them siding with Barnabas and Paul. And then they found out there was a plot contrived to stone these two preachers. And when they learned of the plot, they left Iconium and went to Lystra and Derby to continue to preach. And they didn't leave Iconium out of cowardice, but out of prudence. If they were killed by stoning or badly injured by stoning, they knew they wouldn't be ministering to anybody, anywhere. So they took the safe route and they left before serious trouble arose. But the signs and the wonders that they performed created another issue for Paul and Barnabas. The miracles that they had worked had caused the pagans of Lystra to worship them. And they were put in a place of having to refuse the worship of the pagans. Let's look at the performance of the miracle first. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up 
and began walking. Now understand, Lystra is a fully pagan city where evil pagan practices are rampant. There was no Jewish synagogue here, so there was no built-in audience for Paul and for Barnabas for their message. But Paul reached out with the power of God to a man that was crippled from birth, and he healed him. And most likely he was well known throughout the city. People had seen him there, they knew who he was. They knew he had been crippled from birth. And when Paul told him in verse 10 to stand upright on your feet, his healing was evident to the entire community. I thought it was interesting, it says he sprang up. He didn't do like they do dramatically in the movies, you know, and just slowly drag himself up a brick wall or something till he was standing. He says he sprang up on his feet. But the pagan community here accepted the miracle with just a little bit of a, a, a perverted twist, if you will. The, the perversion of the miracle is kind of strange here. It says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. <laughs> These pagans immediately declared that Paul and Barnabas were the gods, Hermes and Zeus, who had come to earth for a visit to their city. And the priest of Zeus in that city brought stuff for a sacrifice in their honor. So instead here of facing persecution, they were in danger of being worshipped, which obviously detracts from the message they had. The Jewish audiences had never thought to worship them, but here in Leicester the pagans did. So this was, this was new ground for the missionaries. And legend had had it that Hermes and Zeus had visited Lystra before. And they had been ignored by everyone except one old couple who took them in and were rewarded for it. And all of those who failed to show the God's hospitality were destroyed. But the poor couple was spared. So with that legend in mind, the Lystrans were not going to fail to honor or show hospitality to Zeus and Hermes the second time around. They wanted to make sure they were not going to be destroyed. So they offered up their adulation and their worship in hopes of being rewarded, not judged. Now, there were apparently two purposes for the miracle that Paul worked in Lystra. First was denying the pagans' claims. Verse 14 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. <laughs> In verses 14 and 15, the missionaries are having no part of the Lystrans' worship. Maybe they were remembering what happened to Herod when he allowed himself to be worshipped. Remember that? God took him out. And the second purpose was also for declaring the living God. And that's singular. And we bring you good news 
that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Paul and Barnabas use this incident to kind of turn the tables a bit. <coughs> Verse 15, it points, they point the Lystrans to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Even Paul's words scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Paul's sermons in the synagogues were full of Old Testament references, often retracing much of Jewish history, which, of course, would not work here in Lystra because it wasn't their history. So Paul took a different approach in verses 15 to 17. He started with creation, and he spoke of the common grace that was evident in God's creation, things the Lystrans could identify with, like heaven and rain and harvest Gifts from the Creator. Paul tried to move them from their traditional belief in many gods, thinking in terms of one true God. The true God is not one of many. He is the only God and must be worshipped alone. And finally, there was a, a, there was a price for the miracle. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, starting in verse 19, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, Paul and Barnabas might not have been able to stop these Gentiles, these pagans, from worshiping them, but others could the Jews from Antioch. And those Jews came from Antioch and convinced the Lystrans to turn on Paul and Barnabas. And they stoned Paul. They drug him outside the city and they left him for dead. But with the help of some of those who had believed, Paul was nursed back to health that night, made his way back into the city, and then the following day, he and Barnabas left for the next city on their itinerary. They didn't go have a powwow and talk about, maybe we don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> he healed. They left town, went to the next city on their itinerary. Now, many years later, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And he mentioned that it was the Lord himself who delivered him at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. A short time later, he'd tell the believers on his way back through because they're going to retrace their steps now, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How many of you understand what that means? Come on, I know more of you have had tribulations than that. It is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, is it not? There are obstacles in the way. And that's a warning, saying, look, you, you might as well expect this is going to happen. So be ready for it. Be prepared for it. Be persistent and overcome. Well, then these guys, instead of just 
getting finished up at Derby and taken off someplace else, they go back to retrace their steps. They revisit old places. <coughs> Excuse me. At the end of verse 20, it says, And on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So leaving Lystra, Paul and Barnabas walked 60 miles to Derby in verse 21, and there they made many disciples, it said. And then they retraced their steps back through each of the towns that they had been in and where they had been persecuted. Now that was a bit of courage even to show their faces in those places again. But their purpose was to establish those new converts into, into churches and help create a new paradigm for them to grow in. Evangelism is one thing. Discipleship is another. And both are required to fulfill the Great Commission. Are they not? Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples. He didn't say go and make converts. He said go and make disciples. Well, look at some, let's look at some of the ways that Paul and Barnabas followed up for new believers. First of all, they started by encouraging these new believers. Verse 22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, which we just talked about. I would think that Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement, would be a perfect choice for doing this work. Who would be better suited than Barnabas to strengthen the souls of the new disciples? But more than human encouragement, they were taught the word of God. And the more they understood that all of the Old Testament led to the coming of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection, the stronger they would be in their faith. Even though it wasn't necessarily their history, that God's interaction with humans, with people, was all pointing, pointing toward the coming of Jesus. But the new believers in Derby and Leicester and Iconium didn't have this kind of background in the Old Testament to build their faith on. So Paul and Barnabas spent time teaching them the history of God's interaction with mankind. They also taught more detail about Jesus Christ. And without that background and knowledge, they would never have been able to fulfill Peter's admonition that he wrote of in 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. To be prepared. Understand and to know why that hope is there. Secondly, they needed to exhort the disciples. In verse 22, they spent time encouraging and ex exhorting the disciples, the disciples here refers to the new believers. And they, they exhorted them to continue in the faith. Now, studying the scriptures isn't done just for the information, but also so that you're able to stand firm against opposition that we have been told already we know will come. Jesus' new disciples lived in a pagan environment that obviously would not be friendly or patient about this new faith. 
that they had adopted. And if they didn't stand strong, the pressure to recant their new faith and to return to their pagan practices would be overwhelming. That or the new Jewish converts might lapse back into their old legalism. And Paul's advice to them was something that he said often in his later writings. He said, stand firm. Thirdly, as they revisited, they were explaining the possibility of tribulation. Now, it's not difficult for Paul to offer the new believers here reasons to stand firm in their faith. They could see the persecution and the tribulation that he and Barnabas had already endured. But Paul also stated an axiom of the faith that we don't really tell new Christians much today. That there are many tribulations along the road to the kingdom of God. Our contemporary Western church today lacks a theology of adversity. Because we live such comfortable lives. But the truth is, there are many obstacles to getting to heaven and demonstrating faith. Now, it doesn't sound like a particularly encouraging message or an optimistic one to give to new believers. But it is the truth. Jesus suffered. His followers would likewise suffer. According to Romans 8, 16 and 17, it said, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To tell a Christian, a new Christian, anything else would be disingenuous today. They also spent time electing leadership in every church. Verse 23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, (coughs) with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. A little my own history. Um, in the church I was in before coming over here, I took over a church that, and I sure hope they aren't listening to this, but they were somewhat biblically illiterate. Uh, They belonged to a different denomination, one that didn't spend a lot of time expositing God's word and going into God's word, but spending more time in social commentary. So when this old Baptist preacher became the senior pastor, I started preaching. Actually, I started pretty much right where we are here. (laughs) I started in the book of Acts. But I wanted to preach to them the truth. And then one of the things that we had to do was select leaders from within the church. And I have to tell you, it took a while to find out who in the church might qualify as leaders to get them prepared and then to invite them and have them encouraged to accept that responsibility. And so I'm wondering here when I read this, how did Paul and Barnabas know who was or wasn't qualified to lead these new churches, especially in pagan areas? And I figured they probably went through some of the same things that I 
just went through. They had to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere. We're in this thing together. Each of us has to assume some leadership responsibilities. Now, I want to tell you, one of the things that I think I told Laura Lee right away that impressed me about First Baptist when I first came here was your leadership. I'm not doing this to, I don't know, to gain some kind of favor with your deacons. But I want to tell you that these men impressed me. They were men who were seeking God's will. They're presenting their own weaknesses before him right out there and saying, look, we don't know about any of this, but here's what we think God is leading us to do. And they've done just, I think, an incredibly commendable job during this time where they have been seeking God's man to come and lead this church. Paul and Barnabas didn't have guys like that to choose from in these churches. There might have been some some folks available that who knew more than, than others. But they had to be people who were committed to seeking God's face in all that they were doing. So they did. They started somewhere. And as the men grew, their leaders, so did the churches. In verse 23, we're told that they somehow appointed elders for them in every church so there would be a framework of leadership and support as the church grew forward. And then finally, they, was, they were establishing these new disciples through fasting and prayer. As you might recall back in Acts 13 when we studied the first church plant in Syria in Antioch, I mentioned the prominent role that fasting and praying played there. Paul and Barnabas introduced those disciplines to the new believers in Iconium and Lystra and Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, as in verse 23... They prayed and fasted with the new believers. It says they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The purpose of prayer and fasting was more than just modeling Christian disciplines. It was a way to commend the new believers to the Lord for his safekeeping and blessing as the missionaries were preparing to leave them. No. Okay. So what? Where are you taking us now, Pastor? I'm taking us to our guys returning home and reporting their missionary process or progress. In verses 24 to 26, Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps through Pisidia, Antioch, to the Mediterranean seaport of Adalia. And then they boarded a ship and they sailed back to Syrian Antioch, completing their first missionary journey. Then verse 27 tells us how they gathered to report to their sending church. Verse 27 says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, it's our desire and our prayer and our meaning church leadership that this church be one that sends missionaries and supports others. And we have a couple of young ladies that are doing just that right now. Um, Danny, I think you've had a daughter who did some of that. She's back. <coughs> a couple of Elizabeth's girls are on their way back home now, I think. Or is that next weekend? Next weekend. 
And there are others. This church has sent young people out. And, and don't say, well, you didn't send them out there and they weren't out on the field for 27 years. I have to tell you, missions has taken on a whole new face. Short-term missions has become one of the favored ways of being able to carry the gospel to places. Now, of course, I speak to that because I've been involved in short-term missions, and I have to tell you, a piece of my heart is still there. But it's our desire to be a church here that sends, sends the gospel, <laughs> is what you're doing, in the hearts and the minds and the lives of some of our young people and some of our not-so-young people, to other places, some places here in the United States, some places across one of the oceans, but to send. And then we also support other missionaries in their work. Even though we didn't send them, we're supporting others. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And then when some of those missionaries have come home, whether it's at the end of their short-term trip or they're on furlough or whatever it happens to be, we've had the opportunity now to hear from them. They give talks, they give slideshows, they meet in homes, they speak at, at dinners, they speak at Sunday school, they they speak at missions conferences. And why? Well, it's because they're, they're here to report what God has done and allowed them to be a part of around the globe. And what God has accomplished. We see here in Acts 14 where that pattern began as Paul and Barnabas kind of keynote the very first ever missions conference. Their first missionary journey covered about 1,400 miles on sea and on foot and took about one year. Now, I'm not sure that might even still qualify as short-term missions as we know it. But the way they summarize their trip in verse 27, it says, He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Remember, this Antioch church was predominantly Gentile. It was the first predominantly Gentile church. And Paul had been commissioned by Christ himself to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So it had to have created a, a great joy for them <clears throat> to come home and report that God had indeed been bringing Gentiles into the church. At the start of the message here today, I quoted President Coolidge on persistence. And persistence was clearly in evidence on Paul and Barnabas' journey in spite of a number of obstacles that they had to face. In Paphos, on Cyprus, they witnessed a convert after battling a sorcerer. <clears throat> At Perga, their assistant, John Mark, quit the team and went home. In Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, they saw opposition from the religious Jews who then stirred up the local population against them, Paul was stoned and left for dead. On the road to the kingdom of God, there will be some rough spots. There will be turbulence. There will be some uphill climbing. But if we're persistent... We don't give up, like these two guys did. I mean, remember, we pointed out that they would run into an obstacle, they get stoned and left for dead, and what do they do? 
And they got better and took off from the mission field again. They didn't quit. But if we're persistent, we don't give up, we can count on arriving at heaven's gate with the satisfaction that comes when we know <coughs> that we have accomplished the assignment that God gave us. I don't know about you, but that's, that's what I ask for out of life. The ability to overcome the obstacles <clears throat> that the evil one puts in front of us so that I can accomplish what God assigned me to do. No matter how big or small it is, if it means just witnessing to my own kids, then I want to make sure and get that done. If it means speaking to thousands in football stadiums around the world, well, the other, there are other guys that can do that. Whatever it is that God wants me to do, I want to accomplish that. In order to do that, I need, and I can tell you now, you need, a good dose of persistence. Persistence is a choice. And it's maintained through faith and prayer, supporting one another, taking care of one another's needs. Don't fail to persist, to persevere as you make your way toward heaven. Now, this is not my closing message. I still have one more next week before your new pastor comes. And we need to be excited about that day. Because God is doing something new at First Baptist Church. Now, it's actually just starting already, but it's going to hit the ground running in about two weeks. And so we need to be, we need to be getting excited and enthusiastic about coming around Josh and Heather and their family and saying, okay, what's God got in mind for us as a church? Let's all get out there and accomplish it. And I can tell you there will be obstacles. I don't know what they are, but there will be obstacles. But as a community, we need to be faithful and persistent and determined that with God's help we can overcome them. And then let's do it and see what exciting things God has for First Baptist Church. Would you pray with me?